Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. to the Daily Bible Readings from Bangor Worldwide 2020. This year, unfortunately, we cannot gather in person, but it's great to be able to bring Bible teaching to you this year. It's great to have Gary Miller, who's going to be sharing God's Word with us in these mornings. Gary's going to be opening up 1 Thessalonians to us and sharing on the topic of living in light of his coming. Gary is no stranger to many of us. He was a former assistant Minister at Hamlin Road Presbyterian Church before moving to Queensland, Australia to take up the post um, in the Queensland Theological College. Gary's authored a number of books and this latest one, Need to Know, is available from the Faith Mission bookshops or even if you've become a friend of Bangor Worldwide, you'll get yourself a free copy. But over to Gary now, he's going to bring God's word to us. Hi everyone. First, I want to say just how sorry sorry I am that I'm not able to join you in Bangor for this year's Worldwide. I was looking forward to being back in County Down so much, uh, to walking along Ballyhoe Beach, to catching up with all kinds of friends. And Tom Clark had even organized a reunion of the third Bangor Old Boys football team. But all that will have to wait. But thankfully, we do have the opportunity to look at God's word together over these days. So why don't you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you so much that we have the ability to meet virtually, that we have your word and your spirit, and we have your commitment to work in people like us, to recreate in us the image of the Lord Jesus and to give us all that we need to live a life of godliness and to take the message of Jesus to the world. So, Father, we pray that over these days you'd work in us and that even though we can't be together uh, in the room in Bangor, that you would work in us as your people and equip us for whatever challenges the future holds for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Gratitude is a sickness suffered by dogs. So said that well-known theologian Joseph Stalin. The Apostle Paul, however, would beg to differ. For Paul, to be a Christian is to be grateful. It's that simple. To grasp the gospel, to realize that we are created by God and are being recreated in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ to enjoy him forever, that just has to lead to a life of gratitude from start to end. The only way to avoid thankfulness, if you're a Christian, is to forget the gospel. The only alternative to gratitude is to embrace unbelief. So a great question to ask at any time is, am I feeling grateful? Is my life right now marked by a deep and pervasive sense of thankfulness to God for all that he holds out to us in the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think that's a great place to start this worldwide missionary convention. Whatever pressures we've been facing at home or at work or in church, whatever health issues we have, whether we just can't wait for the new normal to start, whatever that is or not, this book of Thessalonians and chapter 1 in particular puts this question to us. Right now, are you thankful? Now, I have to say that today I'm not finding it particularly tough to be filled with gratitude. I got a great night's sleep last night. The sun is shining, as it always is in Brisbane, but it's not too hot. Um, I know that next week I've got study leave starting. It's easy to be thankful. But what will it be like for me or for you 
next week or the week after or the one after that. In the months ahead, we all know we'll face all kinds of situations which are much less conducive to gratitude. But the great news is that because of the awesome reality that our God, Father, Son, and Spirit is at work in our world to bring glory to himself by bringing people like you and me to new life, there are always solid reasons, always overpowering reasons to be thankful. And that explains why thankfulness seeps out of every pore of Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. And it also gives us a great opportunity over these days to soak in the gospel, allowing God himself by his spirit to draw out this gospel-shaped thankfulness from us. So what's the story with the church in Thessalonica? In Acts 17, Luke gives us an abbreviated account of Paul's high-impact visit to the city. The highly idolatrous and richly privileged capital of Macedonia, just to the north of Greece. Paul's three weeks in preaching in the synagogue there had resulted in an initial wave of Jewish converts, including some of the key women in the community and a pile of God-fearers, those non-Jewish people who were hanging around the fringe of the synagogue. As Paul's mission gathered pace then, a significant number of pagans embraced the gospel, which was so exciting. The problem was that the political situation in Thessalonica was a little tense. The general populace was nervous of doing anything to upset Rome, lest they jeopardize the special relationship they had with the powers that be. The Jews were nervous about jeopardizing their fragile relationship with the population who normally just let them be. So when Paul preached and a young, vibrant church was formed, it upset just about everyone. The jumpy Jews had organized a mob to try to put an end to this nonsense. In the ensuing mayhem, the city authorities acted swiftly to restore order in case the Romans decided to remove some of their hard-earned privileges. So they threw Paul and his friends in jail, releasing him only when a new convert called Jason and some other members of the new church came up with the money for a bail bond. The Jews from Thessalonica were so upset about this, they wouldn't let up, and they first chased Paul to Berea and then hounded him so that he had no choice but to flee to Athens. At some point in the months that followed, Paul sat down to write this letter to the newborn church in Thessalonica. The the letter is warm and passionate and straightforward. Paul had had a great time in the city, and he's so excited about what God has done and is doing, and he's deeply grateful to this new church for literally bailing him out. But even though Paul had been able to give them a crash course in Christianity 101, he knows that theologically speaking, they're significantly underdone. So he writes to this keen, vibrant, messy church that he loves deeply to walk them through the basics of living for Jesus in a challenging world. He writes to them so that they can keep their eye on the ball when they're under pressure. So this letter deals with keeping going and keeping growing in the middle of all the complexities of life. 1 Thessalonians is about standing firm living in the light of the gospel. And that's why we're looking at Thessalonians at this moment, at the worldwide, this August. As our minds turn to the challenges and possibilities that lie ahead as we worry and plan and dream and brace ourselves for who knows what, challenges in our families and at work and in the church and in our world, as we steady ourselves to face health challenges and growth opportunities and setbacks and all kinds of ups and downs, as we set ourselves for the rest of our lives to grow in our love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, Thessalonians is God's word to us. And today we start by looking at the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. The chapter is not complicated. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul thanks God for bringing about the most staggering, earth-shattering, life-reorienting change in all of the Thessalonians. We get to listen in to Paul describing how he prays for them, and then we get to look over Paul's shoulder 
as he describes the dramatic change that God had brought about in these people through the gospel. Why does Paul tell them and us what he's been, what he's been praying? Why does Paul speak about the work Christ has done in them in such glowing terms? Well, he does it to encourage them and us to live in the light of the coming of Christ. This letter is an invitation to drink deeply of all that God has done for us in Christ and then to press on refreshed and revitalized and reoriented as we set ourselves to live in and with and for Christ. Now you can sum up this chapter in two simple instructions. Pray like Paul and live like a Thessalonian. And all I want to do today is unpack those two simple instructions from the text. First, God encourages us to pray like Paul. Let's not miss the blindingly obvious fact that Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians. Look with me at how verse 2 begins. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, notice this isn't Paul thanking the Thessalonians, nor is this actually a prayer. It's Paul reporting how he prays as he tells the Thessalonians that he thanks God for them. Why does he thank God for them? Because according to verse 1, they are the, the ecclesia of the Thessalonians, the church who are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word ecclesia is the word routinely used in the Greek Old Testament of God's people Israel. And this little gathering in this Macedonian city is now part of the unfolding, sweeping plan of God to gather one people together from across time and space to bring glory to Jesus. Paul thanks God that the church in Thessalonica is now part of God's new Israel, that they've been caught up in his new covenant plan. And Paul thanks God that they are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be really easy to skip over that phrase, but I want you to see how important it is. Paul says we're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses this in language to make sure that we get the fact that our relationship with God our Father and the Son and the Spirit is as close as it possibly could be. Sometimes Paul says we're God's sons, his privileged children, the ones in the family who get the biggest inheritance. Sometimes he says we're brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus. But his favorite way of talking about our relationship with God is by using this little word, in. Paul wants us to see that we get to share in Jesus' relationship with the Father and the Spirit. You see, the Lord Jesus becomes one of us. He lives a flawless life for us. He dies in our place. He rises for us. He pours out his Spirit on us so that we can know his Father like him. As we trust Jesus in the strength he gives us, Jesus himself moves into our lives through the Spirit, and we are brought to real life, eternal life, as we somehow share in the life of the Trinity itself. Or as Paul says, we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's astonishing. The next time you're in a large group of Christians, look around. I don't know when that will be. I don't know where it will be. But I do know that when you look around, that the people that you will be looking at are those who've been brought to life and included and bound up in the stunning God of the universe. People who are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the foundation of everything else Paul says to them and about them in this letter. And it explains why Paul is so deeply thankful that God has worked in them. That's why Paul writes in verse 4, that we know brothers loved by God, well, literally, your election. We know that you've been chosen by God, and we thank God for that. 
Paul thanks God for them because it was God's work to make them his own. A work which started in God's choice before the foundation of the world and was made obvious in real time as the impassioned apostolic preachers preached with a conviction that was born of the Holy Spirit and the same Holy Spirit used their words to move them to embrace the message with the same deep conviction. Seeing this happen in real time to real people had moved Paul to thank God constantly for what he, God, had done in them in joining them to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You see, for Paul, keeping the fact that God is sovereign in view ensures that life is lived in the key of thankfulness. See, the great news is that whatever we're facing, Wherever we are, if we belong to Christ, the fact that God has chosen us simply because he has chosen us gives us every reason to be full of thanks. We don't always think of it like this, but the fact that God has chosen us out of sheer sovereign generosity, the doctrine of predestination, if you like, that that, contrary to popular opinion, is one of the most heartwarming, motivating, empowering truths contained in the whole Bible. Now, I've got to say, when I first became a Christian, I really struggled with this. In fact, to my embarrassment, when I was a teenager, I used to argue passionately with our next-door neighbor, my friend's dad, that I had definitely contributed a significant amount to my salvation. But eventually, God graciously showed me how wrong I was and that the fact that God has chosen us by grace alone is the plain teaching of the Scriptures and that it's a huge comfort, strength, and is probably the greatest reason that we have to thank God. Girolami Zanchi was an Italian who taught Old Testament both in Strasbourg and Heidelberg during the Reformation period. He summed up the practical benefits of what he called the doctrine of absolute predestination like this. Here's what he says. This doctrine humbles our pride and magnifies God's grace, for it shows us that we can do nothing to save ourselves. God alone saves sinners. He said, election comforts and sustains the saints with God's unchangeable love for them when Satan attacks with doubts and accusations. Thirdly, he says this predestination reveals the infinite glory and sovereignty of the eternal and unchangeable God so that we know him and worship him. Fourthly, it guards the gospel of salvation by faith alone. Fifthly, it brings us a vibrant vision of God's special love for his people in Christ Jesus, which is the joy of his people and the fuel of his love for them. And lastly, predestination, says says Zanshi, moves God's people to diligent holiness of life. Girolami Zanshi may not be well known, but he got what Paul writes about here. You see, for Paul, knowing that God has chosen us opens up a world of comfort and delight and determination and above all gratitude. And it totally shapes how, God, how Paul prays. Paul thanks God for people. For he knows that the way in which the the message of the gospel came to them with real power and conviction, verse 4, which was produced by the Spirit, changed them forever, verse 6. He knows that's all and only the work of God. Now, as we read these opening verses of 1 Thessalonians 1, I do want you to stop and think about this for a moment. Honestly, when was the last time you sat down and thanked God wholeheartedly for the way in which he has worked in another person or another group of people to join them to Christ by faith? When was the last time you sat down and intentionally thanked God for the concrete way in which he's obviously transforming someone you know so that they display more of the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? Really, when was it? Start with those closest to you and work out. Think back. When did you thank God for them? Let's ask ourselves, are we deeply, genuinely thankful for God's work in other people? When was the last time you looked someone in the eye and said, genuinely, I thank God for you? Thanking God for people is a sign of theological maturity. 
We'll only do it consistently and wholeheartedly when we've grasped the fact that it is God who brings us to life. And it is only God who enables us to will and to act according to his purpose. Think about it. Do you thank God for people? And if we get this, when we thank people, we'll do it in a way which is genuinely helpful. If we just thank people for being wonderful, then they get puffed up. If we don't thank people at all, they get crushed. But if we thank God for what he is doing in and through people, then they are both encouraged and reminded of the gospel, which tells us that we are weak, but God is strong. It's a win-win situation. So let's thank God for people who live for God. This week and every week, let's be quick to say, I thank God for you. So as we start the worldwide this year, is thankfulness the dominant note in your life? When you think of your family, your friends, your church family, when you think of our world, whatever else is going on is our attitude. Are our prayers set in the key of thankfulness? Because when we grasp the gospel and are enjoying life in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus, they will be. Which takes us to the second part of this passage. Paul reports that he prays with thankfulness, but as he does so, he gives us a beautiful picture of what it looks like when people like us are mastered by and changed by the gospel, which powerfully, if indirectly, calls us to live like a Thessalonian. As we've seen, Paul has made it very clear that the grind of all his thankfulness and all the Thessalonians' godliness is actually God's work in them. But Paul also knows that when God is at work in an individual or in a community, then it becomes very obvious, unmissable even. As Paul highlights five key attributes of the Thessalonians, he gives us a really powerful picture of what it looks like to live in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, of what it means to live in the light of his coming, to be steadfast as God works in our lives through the gospel in this challenging world. And what are these five features? Let's just step through them. The first one's commitment. You'll see it from verse two. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Unusually here, the emphasis isn't on the faith, hope, and love triad. It's on their work, their labor, and their steadfastness. It's on their hard work, their commitment. At the risk of stating the obvious, commitment is the first mark of real Christianity. The Thessalonians' willingness to work hard is a sign that we are the real deal. I grew up in Elmwood Presbyterian Church in Ballamacash on the outskirts of Lisburn. The church building there was and still is used during the week for all kinds of community activities, which would have been great if it weren't for the fact that it meant we had to clear 350 chairs every Sunday in life. But the liturgy of the chair stacking had an important function in the life of our congregation. It served as a pretty reliable index of the godliness of the members. I always remember as a, as a teenager asking my dad if I should vote for a particular individual when we were choosing new elders. His reply simply was, he doesn't ever help with the chairs. Enough said or almost enough. I do have to say that talking about the hard yards of commitment like this is a little dangerous because over the years we've often slipped into talking as if if we work hard and go to church and clear the chairs that God will reward us. And that's simply not Christianity. But nor is the version of Christianity which says that God has done everything so we can just put our feet up and wait for heaven. The gospel announces the free, all-encompassing grace of God, but it also insists that this grace both enables and demands a response of wholehearted commitment. Jesus said, both come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and take up your cross daily and follow me. Paul preached the same message, which is why he's so delighted with the Thessalonians' response to the gospel. 
Paul points out that for these new Christians, God's electing love for them, which was revealed through the preaching of the gospel as they responded to him in faith, flowed naturally into work and labor and steadfastness. Paul sees their commitment and he gives thanks. It was expressed in trusting Jesus, loving God and other people as they waited for his return and presumably in clearing up the chairs as well. They worked, they served, they kept going week in, week out. And Paul holds up their commitment as a mark of the real thing. So thank God when you see this kind of commitment in others and cultivate this kind of commitment in yourself. Now, I've got to say that that's not all that easy just now. Commitment is not really in fashion. Just think of the way the world has changed over the last 30 years or so. People change jobs more often, change channels more often, change their phones more often, move eyes more often, change churches more often. None of those things are intrinsically bad. Well, apart from swapping churches and probably phones and probably the others too. But we need to be aware that we live in an atmosphere where we try things and drop them freely and with frightening regularity. Now, unless we're really careful in the church, we'll just fill our lungs with that air and be exactly the same as everyone else. I suspect that's one of the things why committing yourself to serve Jesus cross-culturally in particular for the rest of your life seems even more strange now than it did 30 years ago. But that's why it's so good that we're gathered for this worldwide missionary convention to encourage each other to commit for the long haul to serving Christ, whatever that looks like, wherever that takes us, because commitment matters. This is the, the part of the natural outworking of God's work in us. Commitment to following Jesus ourselves while we have breath. Commitment to the people, to all the people in our church family. Commitment to taking the message of Jesus Christ to the nations, whatever it may cost. You see, the gospel produces this kind of commitment as Christ works in us. I do wonder if this is an area where we need to repent and ask God to conform us to the rock-solid, utterly dependable likeness of the Lord Jesus himself. Commitment. That's the first mark of people who live for God, for which Paul gives thanks. And the second? The second is conviction. We've already looked at verse 5, where Paul links his own conviction in preaching the gospel with the conviction produced in the Thessalonian converts by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Conviction is clearly another of the hallmarks of the work of God in the lives of others that we should give thanks for. Now, we do have to be a bit careful here. Paul isn't simply talking about strength of feeling or raw zeal, being driven by unbridled emotions that aren't formed and molded and shaped by the gospel is the way of extremism. So it is possible that for some of us, we need our enthusiasm to be reined in and redirected and re-energized by God through the gospel. But on the other hand, some of the rest of us may need God to light a fire under us to get us to do anything other than reflect wisely on the state of the world. You see, unfortunately, as human beings, we do tend to lurch between passionate error and detachment. As W.B. Yeats famously wrote of the post-World War I world in his poem, The Second Coming, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. But there is a third way. Paul makes it clear that when God works through the gospel, it produces a real solid conviction, which is intelligent and thoughtful on the one hand and passionate yet controlled on the other. It's the quiet conviction produced by the gospel, which makes it very clear to everyone we meet that for us, Jesus Christ is the center of everything that we really do believe that he is the Lord of the cosmos, the judge of all, the one who can save us through faith. It's a deep conviction that the truth matters and people matter. How can we spot this kind of conviction? I think it's one of those places where we know it when we see it. 
At college here in Brisbane, I spend a fair amount of time listening to students preach. And one of the questions we use in our preaching groups to help and encourage and sharpen the students is, did the preacher sound like he believed the message? It's always an interesting discussion. But I think it's one of the most important questions we ask. Does the way in which we speak, the way in which we live, back up the truth of what we're saying? For when something matters to us, it shows whether an exuberance or a, an unspoken determination or a settled confidence or a note of pleading urgency, everything in us joins our words in saying this matters. And this kind of rock-solid conviction that this message matters because it is God's message for his world is something that we all need. The kind of conviction which bleeds out of this passage is the conviction that truth matters because ultimately people matter. So does the truth matter for you? Are you passionate about the truth of the gospel and does it distress you when the truth is mangled or soft-pedaled or ignored? You see, God works by his spirit to give us this kind of burning concern for the truth. And as the spirit works the gospel deeper into us, this concern for truth is never hard-edged or theoretical, but it's expressed in the most tender concern for people. When we're convinced of the truth of the gospel, it always teaches us to care. So has the gospel taught you to care? James Denny was a, a prominent Scottish theologian at the start of the 20th century. The first book he ever wrote was a collection of sermons he preached as a young minister in Brody Ferry, just north of Dundee, in his first and only parish church. Here's what he says. In the church of today, emotion needs rather to be stimulated than repressed. The passion of the New Testament startles us when we chance to feel it. For one man among us who is using up the powers of his brain in broken ecstasies, there are thousands who've never been moved by Christ's love to a single tear or a single heart throb. They must learn to love before they can labor. Conviction is a mark of the real work of God in our lives, which spills over into love. The third mark of this authenticity is joy in suffering. This is one of those places in the New Testament where Paul urges his friends to follow him as he follows Christ. We often feel slightly awkward about this, as if it's somehow unworthy of Paul to hold himself up. But look at what he actually says, verses 5 to 7. You know what kind of man we proved among you to be to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The pattern's quite simple. Jesus obeyed his Father with joy through suffering. Paul followed in his steps, obeying and proclaiming the word of Christ joyfully through suffering. The Thessalonians embraced his message and followed Christ keeping going joyfully through the trauma of making a clean break with idolatry in a city that had 25 sep separate temples, rocking the social fabric to the core. And as they did that, they in turn became a great example to the believers all over Greece by taking suffering for the gospel in their stride as they continued to delight in Jesus. If we're followers of the Lord Jesus, then we should look like Jesus. I suspect that for many of us, finding joy in the imitation of Christ in his suffering is not something we give a lot of thought to. It sounds a bit too medieval Catholic for us, a bit too works-based. It has the unpleasant scent of self-flagellation. But we must be really careful not to ditch something that's obviously biblical because we have a bit of work to do to get our heads around it. In the New Testament, this idea is everywhere. Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces insurance. 2 Corinthians 6, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger. 
Philippians 2, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Colossians 1, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. James 1, kind of pure joy when you meet trials of many kinds. 1 Peter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, in the New Testament, it's not just that suffering is absolutely normal and to be expected for, for Christians. It's that we suffer with joy because we're being made like Christ. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men to Christ to make them little Christs. If that's not happening, then we're wasting our time. See, through the gospel, the Spirit draws us into fellowship with Jesus, and we walk as he did, which means receiving the word with much affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. So how are you going with that? Have we got it straight in our heads that this is our lot, that embracing the gospel brings with it all those lovely things like affliction and opposition and suffering because we belong to Jesus, because we follow Jesus, and because God has set it up so that we will become like Jesus. I hope we've got this. Could be wrong, but my sense is that things are going to get a whole lot harder as we seek to follow Christ, whether it's in Northern Ireland or in Australia or anywhere else. Perhaps it's time for us to repent of our secret desire to float through life on a cloud of success and ease and set ourselves again to do nothing else other than follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus as we suffer with the joy that flows from gratitude. And when we do that, when we do that together, well, you know, there's nothing more encouraging than seeing other people do hard yards for the gospel with a smile on their faces. When we see that, even the most cynical of us, even the most detached are moved to thank God. And we're moved to do other things too. Two more marks and then we're done. Paul thanks God for people who are living for God, which can be seen in their commitment, their conviction, their joy and suffering, and in their evangelism. In verse 8, Paul says something very surprising. For not only has the word of the Lord echoed or resounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith towards God, probably referring to their conversion, has gone forth everywhere, so we don't need to say anything. Why didn't Paul need to say anything? Two reasons. First, because the Thessalonians had already told their story and the gospel to anyone who would listen. And second, because the obvious turnaround in their lives had already validated their message. Everyone knew they were the real deal. So Paul thanks God for the outworking of the real work in their lives in their proclamation of the gospel. See, for people like us, who are willing to invest in something like the worldwide, we need to keep asking ourselves, are we still growing in our knowledge of God? And the second, are we still doing evangelism? Now, I know that in theory, the two things can't be separated, but in practice, both Christians and churches tend to drift in one of two directions. Either we become so preoccupied with theological correctness that all our efforts to proclaim the gospel are gradually rendered completely ineffectual, or we become so, so preoccupied with reaching out effectively that we slowly but surely lose our theological anchors and slide into pragmatism. What 1 Thessalonians 1 calls for is local churches that are both thoroughly theologically driven and evangelistically effective. You see, if we're to live in the light of the coming of Christ, we need to keep growing in our grasp of what God has done for us in Christ and we need to keep telling other people about Jesus. So since the last time you gathered, if you were at the Worldwide last year, since this time last year, how have you grown in your knowledge of God? And who have you lovingly shared the gospel with in the past 12 months? Because these both matter desperately. And one more thing, we're done. 
There was one other feature which marked out the Thessalonians. And the word in the streets about the church in Thessalonica made it clear. They welcomed Paul, but more than that, they embraced the gospel. Verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There are some things you get noticed. We discovered a, a few months ago that replacing your falling down fence is something that is noted with interest uh, throughout our community. Every day we discover that walking a three-legged dog is something that gets you noticed where we live. If you wanted to get noticed in Thessalonica, then opt out of all idolatry. Turn from idols to serve the living and the true God with the massive disruption that that brings to every part of your life. Because stopping worshipping idols affected the way they did business and where they ate out and who they hung out with and how they related to the city council. That really cost something. But this short summary, which probably reflects a report brought to Paul by someone like Priscilla and Aquila, recently arrived from, the hub, from Rome, which was the hub of all the Mediterranean gossip, highlighted the fact that not only had these people rejected idolatry, but they served God that they kept talking about Jesus coming back and they were living in the light of that. And because of the fact that they were so moved by Jesus' death and resurrection, so changed by his work on their behalf, they were set free. They knew they didn't need to worry about the coming judgment and the wrath of God. They knew that everybody else did, so they spent themselves in sharing this message with everyone else. These guys were the real thing. It was blatantly obvious they'd embraced the gospel and were living it. They were authentic. There was no public-private divide. Their words and their lives matched up because God had brought authenticity, integration, Christ-likeness. I think this is a great description of what it means to live a gospel-shaped life. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is how we are to live. The thing about the Thessalonians was that God had made them the real deal. And when Paul sees their, their beliefs and their life match up, when he sees their authenticity, he thanks God. I suspect there are lots of us for whom this is a bit uncomfortable because all of us, to a greater or lesser degree, are hypocrites. Gnawing away at all of our hearts is the feeling that if other people only knew what I was really like, the toxic sense that one day God will stumble on the truth about us and the game will be up and suddenly he'll cancel all his commitments to us because we signed up under false pretenses. You ever feel like that? The problem is it's so far from the truth. The beauty of the gospel is that God, knowing what we are like far more than we do, chose us, sent Christ for us, poured his spirit out on us. He loves us more than life itself. And he is committed to working in us to make us the real thing like Jesus. So much so that even now all our sin and stupidity and duplicity, all it can bring out from the heart of God is a greater loving commitment for us, his children. This is a very rich and challenging chapter. Yes, it's a call to thank God for his kindness to us, but even as we're called to be thankful, this part of the Bible recalibrates our thankfulness, driving us first and foremost to thank God for what he's done and is doing in and through our brothers and sisters. See, this part of the Bible pushes us to look for and thank God for the real evidence of the work of his spirit in the lives of others. So thank God for people who live for God. And as we do that, let's examine our own lives for these signs of reality, for commitment and conviction and joy and suffering and evangelism and the authenticity of a joined up life. And where we see them, thank God because it's all of him. And where we don't, be honest repent and throw ourselves again in the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, knowing that incredibly, brothers and sisters, we are loved by God and have been chosen in Christ and that he has both the will and the power and the commitment to finish what he has started as we are remade in his likeness and strengthened 
to live in the light of his coming. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that today you would work the gospel a little deeper into our hearts, that we'd be amazed again at what you have done and are doing and will do in people like us. Open our eyes so that we see what you're doing in the lives of others and rejoice and thank God for them. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to face ourselves, that you'd show us where we're at, what we're like, and that rather than being crushed, you'd enable us to run to you and fall into your arms crying to you to continue your work in us that we might live like Thessalonians in the strength that you supply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
thank you to Gary for that great challenge from Thirst Thessalonians. Can I encourage you today, if you're watching this live, to tune into the seminar at half past two of Mission in a COVID World run by MAP. And then for half seven this evening for our evening celebration where we're going to be in conversation with Lindsay Brown and where Richard and Louisiana from All Nations are going to be sharing with us and Gary's going to bring a challenge from God's Word again. Let's bring our time together to a closing prayer. Father, we thank you for what we have heard today. And we do pray that you would help us through your spirit to pray like Paul and to live like the Thessalonians. Father, I pray that our lives would be marked by commitment, conviction, joy and suffering, evangelism and authenticity. And Father, as we do indeed cast our mind to Calvary, would these things just overflow in our lives and in our actions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.